Ladies and gentle nerds, today we will feature one of the most heated discussions in Byword history, as that nerd Chris, also known as the channeling of Ryan Johnson, is going to take on that nerd Dave to find out what should have been done differently about The Last Jedi. Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Today, Chris and I are going to try to do the impossible. We are going to once again try to fix a Star Wars movie. Only in this case, Chris and I may have some very different opinions. So this might get heated. A reason to stick around. Before we get deep, deep, deep into Star Wars The Last Jedi, it is time, of course, once again for... Chris, what is happening in the world of nerds? So in last week's news segment, we discussed writer Nick Spencer's upcoming departure from the Amazing Spider-Man title. We also uh, recklessly speculated on who we would like to see featured as the next Spidey scribe. Fans of the character did not have to wait long, as this week it was revealed that a rotating roster of writers will begin the Spider-Man Beyond storyline with issue 75 and uh, will be released three times per month. So think brand new day type situation. Um, According to Marvel's press release, it seems that Zeb Wells built the idea for this story and will be joined by the likes of Kelly Thompson, Saladin Ahmed, Patrick Gleason, and Cody Ziegler. As editor, uh, excuse me, as Spider-Man editor Nick Lowe details in the press release, Wells has done an incredible job of blending humor and emotional stakes in this current run on Hellions, a book I highly recommend. Um, have nerd commended, will nerd commend again. Thompson is currently writing two very popular and well-received titles for Marvel, both Captain Marvel, Dave's previous nerd commendation, and Black Widow, and has shown an incredible ability to perfectly pinpoint the essence of her characters in series like Rogue and Gambit, Deadpool, and Mr. and Mrs. X. In addition to his Eisner award-winning run on Black Bolt, Saladin Ahmed has breathed new life into the character of Miles Morales on the current title, at least on the screen on a comic book side of things. And don't kid yourself. Pat Gleason is not only a nerdy award-winning artist. Nice plug. He also has some serious writing chops as well, including the Superman rebirth title that I'm currently reading uh, from the distinguished competition for homework. Newcomer Cody Ziegler surely caused some raised eyebrows, but Lowe praised his previous work on the upcoming She-Hulk Disney Plus series and Rick and Morty, two humor-infused shows that should certainly lend themselves well into the story of Spider-Man. The Spider-Man Beyond storyline will reportedly focus on the return of fan favorite Ben Riley as he returns to take over the mantle and moniker of Spider-Man. He will be backed by the Beyond Corporation, and speculation is running rampant after promotional images teased a possibly fatal end for Peter Parker. Fans will get their first glimpse of the new direction in August 14th's Free Comic Book Day 2021 Spider-Man Venom before issue 75 hits stands in October. Dave, you are a well-professed fan of Ben Riley. Are you happy with this news? 
Well, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, absolutely. I'm very excited to see uh, Ben Riley back in the, you know, uh, spotlight a little bit. You know, I, I know, you know, Dan Slott famously brought the guy back and then turned him into a villain. And then I think Peter David tried to do sort of an anti-hero kind of take on him in a Scarlet Spider book that was not very well received. Um, and he's just kind of been bouncing around. I think he's currently appearing in the, the Iron Man series, I believe. Um, the, the problem, of course, is that the version that we've been seeing that's sort of been kickstarted by by Dan Slott is not really, you know, Ben Riley. It doesn't really feel like that character. I mean, ultimately, the character was introduced at a time when when Peter Parker himself was going through sort of a dark phase. And the idea was when he was first introduced that this is basically Spider-Man at its purest, you know, the the quipper, the the joy of of being Spider-Man. And for that, at the time, I really, really, really enjoyed Ben Riley's character. So, I mean, it, to some extent, it depends on what they're planning on doing with the character. If we're getting something close to his first tenure as Spider-Man, uh, then I'm all for this. If we're instead getting something that continues this very weird take on Ben Riley's character as this sort of mean-spirited, almost villain, I don't think I'm going to have a lot of fun with that. I was not the biggest fan of uh, Superior Spider-Man either. That mean-spirited Spidey take, you know, when when Dr. Octopus was inhabiting Peter Parker's body, it's not really what I come to the show for when it comes to Spider-Man. You know, Spider-Man, in essence, is is a very good-natured character, and having anybody who's not that in the role always feels a little off. So if this is, you know, Ben Riley at his best, I'm all here for it. If it's Dan Slott's Ben Riley, eh. Yeah, yeah, I tend to completely agree with you. I mean, the the one thing that is overarching that has me the most excited is uh, you know, the cast of writers that that you know have been teased here. So I, I'm a big fan of of all of their work. Cody Ziegler is obviously a newcomer, but the little bit I've seen of Rick and Morty, uh I've I've thoroughly enjoyed and I'm super hyped for the She-Hulk series. Um and I love a little humor in my Spider-Man comics. So I'm, I'm, I'm very welcoming of that. I can't speak highly enough. Zeb Wells was like my dark horse candidate, the one that I was pulling for. So to see him as the kind of de facto leader of this stable of writers is really, really exciting. You know, Ahmed is, has, like I said, worked wonders with Miles. Um, I know Miles had his coming out parties, if so to speak, uh, in into the Spider-Verse, but like a lot of his comic stuff you know, I think very, very highly of Brian Michael Bendis, but we've talked about it before. His his work on the Miles books towards the his the end of his tenure there at Marvel really left a lot to be desired. And when when Saladin came onto the title, it was really and I can't suffice this enough. It was really like a breath of a fresh air, and it was just like a completely like rejuvenated you know sense. And Kelly Thompson, I I absolutely think the world of. Um, and then, you know, based on what I've, I've read so far of the rebirth era of Superman, uh, Pat Gleason has, especially can, can definitely write a, a hopeful character, you know, and, and so I'm super excited to see where this goes. Yeah, I'm very excited too. I mean, in the end, you are correct. You know, the writing team is really good. And I will say, you know, going through this, you know, three times uh, a month, uh, schedule really for amazing is, is not a bad idea. I know I was, um, kind of on ground zero there of the whole uh, brand new day era. And I think it worked overall really well. Um, 
I wasn't really a fan of the idea of, you know, resetting Peter at the time back to basically, you know, the 1970s comic book status quo. But as far as like multiple writers working together and juggling a series that came out more frequently, I think it worked uh, extremely well. And it has the potential to work extremely well here again. I think whether, you know, big fans of Peter Parker are going to be willing to give this a chance depends a lot on the final um, fate of Peter. I think if they try to kill Peter, you know, yet again, I think there's going to be plenty of people in the in the fandom who are not going to give this a chance. If on the other hand, they go ahead and, you know, sort of undo the, the whole one more day situation and let him sort of ride off into the sunset with Mary Jane, I think they might be a little bit more accepting of, of this turn of events, Chris. Go figure. Spider-Man fans being salty. What? No. Um, yeah, that is... That is a really great point. I mean, due to the fact that that Marvel just keeps wanting to push this title, it's it's you know, if not the number one, one of its best selling titles consistently. It's it's probably their A book, you know, um, and they want to push it out three times a uh, three times a month, which you know, for a large part, they were doing, they have been doing even during the Spencer run. You know, some of that is as a result of trying to play catch up from COVID and, and all that stuff. But um, so I'm glad to see they can kind of disperse that and, um, you know, amongst different writers rather than, you know, making that rest on the shoulders of just one person or or two even. Um, so that's really exciting. And not only that, are you div- divvying up the work, so to speak? the people you are divvying up the work to are people that I completely trust in terms of, you know, quality of writing and they are well, very well acclimated in individuals. Um, you know, that's, that's the other rub for me is what happens with Peter. Um, I think killing him off would be just really silly and, you know, just beating a dead horse pun fully intended at this point. So I'll be definitely intrigued and I'm obviously going to be reading. Yeah, I'm right there with you. All right, Dave, what is your news story for this week? Oh, I, I got something exciting if if you're a fan of, of video games and The Walking Dead. So uh, I'm a huge fan of the Telltale Walking Dead video games. I think oftentimes uh, the video games were far superior to the TV show as far as storytelling goes um, and, and very much the equal of the comic book series, which, let's be honest... Uh, actually managed to stick its landing, which I don't think the TV show is going to manage at this point, considering how far they uh, are off the reservation from the original story. Um, The best part of the Telltale Walking Dead games was the central character, of course, uh, which is uh, Clementine. And now, in sort of a really, really awesome turn of events, we're actually getting Clementine in comic book form. A celebrated writer and artist Tilly Walden is going to be uh, releasing a, a series of um, graphic novels aimed at young adults uh, that are going to be featuring uh, Clementine from the Telltale Walking Dead video games. Uh, and here is uh, Walden, uh, a quote from her uh, in the announcement from Skybound Entertainment. Starting out with a character like Clementine is both a huge responsibility and a joy. Clementine is a person who brings adventure with her everywhere she goes. And the more I thought about it, the more I wanted to take her beyond the world of the games to somewhere new and thrilling. She is a force 
and drawing and writing her story has been one of the best experiences in my cartooning life. So the really cool thing uh, about Clementine is that she has really transcended, I think, uh, the video games already for a while. People uh, were clamoring for the character to be introduced to the TV show as a way to revitalize the show because she's just such a fascinating character with such an interesting backstory. And people who've played the Telltale games, myself included, have grown very fond and very, very attached to Clementine as a character. So Clementine book one uh, is supposed to go on sale in July of 2022 uh, with plans for it to be the first in a trilogy. So although this is still a ways out, I'm extremely excited. Uh, The first image released from the series, the cover looks extremely uh, true to life of what people would expect from the character. And uh, Tilly Walton is definitely the right person for the job, I think, based on this artwork. So, Chris, I'm totally psyched about this one. You know, this is, you know, completely out of my wheelhouse. But based on the recent conversation we had with uh, writer Terry Mayo of of Buddy, um, I think this is just a genius move business-wise. You know, I think it's a really a lot of, uh, you know, untapped potential when it comes to the horror genre with like kid-friendly horror which seems kind of antithetical and like an oxymoron but like kids are gobbling up you know my own kids as i talked about in the interview are gobbling up things like five nights at freddy's and stuff like that so this is just genius you know compounding with the fact that you know clementine seems to be such a popular character so this is just a really really smart move on their part i think And it is a nice way of kind of keeping The Walking Dead alive a little bit in the comic books because, you know, Robert Kirkman did finish his story. Um, The Walking Dead series is done and I think concluded extremely well. I think uh, it sort of makes a great unit if you sit down and read the whole thing from start to finish. It it tells a cohesive finished story and one that I think works on pretty much every level. Uh, So this kind of latching onto this character and further sort of exploring her story. Uh, is a very, very smart way of keeping the Walking Dead brand alive, I think. And and much smarter than, uh, you know, television spinoffs like uh, Fear the Walking Dead, which I don't think ever really lived up to, to its potential, much like the television series itself, which after a very strong first season kind of just went down the toilet increasingly, whereas the comic book series just kept going from strength to strength. So... Uh, I think The Walking Dead is at its best still in its original medium in the comic books. And seeing this character coming to the comic books is very, very exciting. All right, folks, there you have it. That's it for Nerd News. Stick around because after the break, Chris and I are going mano a mano when it comes to Star Wars The Last Jedi. How would we fix it? All right, ladies and gentle people, we're back. Welcome back to the Nerd Byword podcast, where we're getting ready to once again fix a Star Wars movie. And we have arrived in the centerpiece, the second of three, in the sequel trilogy, Star Wars The Last Jedi. Uh, This one is extremely divisive among the fan base, and it's pretty divisive between Chris and I as well. So we have uh, an interesting round of fixes ahead of us, I do believe. As we always do when we're trying to fix a movie, Chris and I both have selected 
sort of three big fixes that we think need to be implemented, uh, as well as a few bonus fixes in a quick lightning round, which we will hit at the end. So before we get started, Chris, I do want to make something very clear. Uh, You and I have had multiple discussions uh, on social media and even in person about uh, The Last Jedi. And I think uh, people that follow us on social media might be coming away with the idea that I somehow hate this movie, which I do not. I, I think The Last Jedi is, at the very least, one of the most gorgeously shot and most Uh, ably directed movies in the entire Star Wars franchise. I think the movie looks absolutely gorgeous, has some very, very neat ideas, but I do think it goes wrong in a couple of key areas. Chris, overall impressions from you before we get started on The Last Jedi? Well, and I think it's really interesting. Um, You know, people almost got like a preview episode if they're following us on social media, like literally before we hit the record button, we were going back and forth. Um, and I really think now that I kind of sit back and look at our conversation, I really just think it's a difference of like personality and what we look for when it comes to certain aspects of a film. So the reasons that I love this movie and it is up there in the, in my power ranking of star Wars movies and nerd media are the macro big picture, symbolic thematic things the things that really resonate with me are the idea, number one, the most beautiful thing about this movie and my number one bone to pick with the next one is that anybody can be like the chosen hero. The fact that it is purported in this film that Ray comes from a couple of nobodies, genealogically speaking, is absolutely beautiful. And the the last ending shot with the quote unquote broom boy, the fact that anybody can rise to be a hero and it is not all about the bloodlines and your genes and you have to be a Skywalker or you have to be a Palpatine to be a hero, to be strong with the force is absolutely just beautiful with me. And um, just the idea of we, sometimes you have to, you know, to directly quote Kylo Ren, let the past die in order for something new to be born And, you know, it's a painful process. I think that's really an interesting thing to really tackle in a film. And, you know, in in something like Star Wars, it's just really revolutionary. But I think the kind of the pushbacks that you have about the film are detail-oriented character beats that don't really seem to live up, Um, which I also have. Like, this is not a perfect film by any stretch from me. But, I, 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 you know, just kind of... I'm more macro and I think you're a little bit more micro. I think that's probably true. And I do like uh, the idea and, you know, we'll get into it, but I think, you know, like a lot of the stuff that, you know, sort of overzealous Star Wars fans don't like about the movie. I was perfectly fine with grumpy. Luke was fine by me. I just didn't think it was earned with the explanation given Um, Ray coming from nothing. I think is a very smart move. You know, let's get away from this family infighting. Those sorts of things work really well. And even letting the past die is a great theme for this movie. However, I don't think uh, Ryan Johnson really believed uh, his own preaching there. He wasn't really practicing what he preached because the movie, to me, in a lot of ways, feels like a consistent menu of things we've seen before just to be inverted. He's constantly playing with uh, Star Wars fans' expectations. And I think if you're doing that, if you're constantly referencing the past only to subvert it, that's not letting the past die. That is not creating something new. Um, 
I, I wished a lot of the references that are here too, stuff like the Empire Strikes Back or the uh, the throne room scene in uh, Return of the Jedi were not there, that it was truly new, that it truly let the past die and kind of completely went in a different direction. Um, but as it stands, it was just reference after reference after reference um, just to subvert the expectation. And at that point, you just kind of become frustrated because, you know, the expectation is constantly dangled in front of you just to then be subverted. It's not truly something new. Um, it just kind of is messing with you the con- constantly. And I think that was more than anything else, the frustrating part of watching this movie. It wasn't truly something new. It was really just messing with my expectations constantly. Well, it's interesting that you say that because this time in viewing this, this is probably my fifth or sixth time viewing this film. And this time... Um, you know, kind of coloring my expectations, if you will, based on your viewpoints and my preconceived notions of how I have seen it previously. It was really interesting because something dawned on me that I haven't seen before. And I very much identify with Luke in this film as someone who grew up, um, you know, in with with heavy religious overtones, organized religion, and then kind of falling away from that, kind of seeing the fallacies with that and then becoming like disenfranchised um, and, and seeing that. But then you have Ray come along and, and says, yes, essentially says, yes, there are elements that were wrong. And I think one of the overarching things that we learned from the prequels is that, and, and, and Luke explicitly says that in this film, is that the legacy of the Jedi is failure. And I think that might be an oversimplification. And he's speaking out of his emotion, his own emotional experiences and how he failed his nephew. But I think that is a strong thing that is purported from the prequels is that you have this Jedi order who has been, you know, put up on this pedestal for generations as what's the one thing that most little nerds want to be? They want to be a Jedi. Every time that you have like a towel or a large blanket over you as a kid, you pretend to be a Jedi. Every time I would stand in front of an automatic door and the doors would open, I was like, I did that with a Jedi mind trick. Like I'd use the force to open that door. And and a lot of that, I think the most interesting line in the film for me is to say that the Jedi are the only... I'm paraphrasing, but like that the Jedi are the only way to continue using the force and you have to be a Jedi to be a quote unquote good force user is vanity. And I think that's a really interesting thing to tackle. But then you have Ray come along who says, well, there are things in the past that we could still utilize. So you don't have to burn it all down. So and I think that, you know, kind of comes across in in like that, that kind of contrast of things and kind of going back and forth reference. I think that's fair. All right, let's go ahead and get into the fixes, Chris. What is your first big fix for uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi? Um, and I don't know if it's just a miscommunication on the part of J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson, but I think the character of Finn throughout this entire film franchise, throughout this entire trilogy, throughout this entire character arc is horribly misserved. I adore and I perhaps identify the most with the character of Finn. I feel like... Finn and I both have all of like the all the good intentions in the world, but you don't necessarily have the skills to back it up. 
He doesn't have the training to back it up. He wants to do the right thing, but he's just like fumbling. You know, it almost reminds me of like Ultimate Spider-Man, those first couple of arcs where he's just like failing his way towards figuring it out. Like he's way over his skis. He's really trying to do the right thing or what he perceives to be the right thing. Um, And even in the mishandling of the character in this film, you know, he's running away again at the beginning of the film. And then, you know, he's sequestered onto the side quest of the film, which ultimately doesn't end up having any meaning towards the, the end. It's all foiled in the end, which we didn't necessarily know at the beginning and the onset of the film. But I really wish that we would have had more meaningful, like, development for Finn. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not completely eschewing the character arc that we and the story that we did get because i think that the character of rose tico is absolutely beautiful the fact that she idolizes finn in their first meeting but then immediately she's like oh i see what you're doing and then stuns him someone who she just praised as one of her personal heroes and then just whips out a stun gun and completely wipes him out and i thought that was amazing and like so she sticks to her convictions no matter what and i think that her like monologue on canto bite about look closer. What do you really see beneath the surface of this, you know, chocolate covered dung of a planet? You know, Cantobite is, you know, I I would think an obvious, you know, um, metaphor for something like Las Vegas, or you have this land of opulence, but you look really closely of like the underbelly of all that. And the, the, the poor treatment of the Favier's and these poor kids that are, you know, working in the stables. So there were elements of that quote unquote side quest as we'll dive into later. I think that were um, redeemable, um, namely Rose and, you know, even the character beats of Finn. I, I do like how he faces off against Phasma, um, which I'll get into in a moment, but it really, I, I really think it goes back to what we said when we were fixing the Force Awakens, why can't you have two Force-sensitive individuals from the jump? You know, we have, you know, and we talked about this two weeks ago, we have different types of students. We have different types of learners. We have students who learn better auditorially. We have visual learners. We have kids who need to watch movies to back up their education. We have kids who are strict note takers and very, you know, traditionally academic. Like, why? That would be a much more interesting direction to go in. Yeah, so um, to me, uh, I totally agree with this. Justice for Finn would have been if he wasn't even uh, in the situation he was in in this movie. His entire subplot really goes nowhere. Um, he, he should be with Rey and with Luke. He should be a Jedi. He should be, you know, the other student of Luke, so to speak. Um, that That's really where he should have ended up. And I think Poe uh, would have actually been much better served being on, on this mission with, with Rose. Uh, but I'll talk a little bit more about that. But to me, another big problem with the Finn situation is his complete um, reversal of growth at the beginning of this movie. Uh, You know, he was scared and trying to run away for pretty much the entirety of The Force Awakens until he decides, no, I'm going to make my stand because I want to help Rey. And and then at the beginning of this movie, he's back to, no, I'm going to go ahead and run away. So if, if we're going to have some kind of trajectory for this character, growth, then we have to acknowledge the growth in The Force Awakens and, and then tailor his arc in this movie to the fact that he's already grown past the, I'm a scaredy cat and I'm going to run away. 
I, you know, and, and you say Poe, and that's, I think that's definitely interesting. I think it would have been perfect to even just have Rose be on that mission or some other type of character, a new development. Um, because I think I, I don't want to toss away that character. I think she's absolutely fascinating and screw everybody that was super hateful and racist and misogynistic towards her. I, and I love that she went on to do something like Ryan, the last dragon. Kelly Marie Tran is a very talented individual, but I, I think that you could have pivoted from that and still had that. If you wanted to have that master Codebreaker storyline, it's just, I, I think Finn was ill-suited for that. Even if he's like, you know, at the initial onset of that, like to, to kind of put that all in motion. But I think that he would have been better served somewhere else. I agree with that 100%. All right, Dave, I'm really interested to get into your first point because it's something that I really stuck out to me um, after viewing it this time around. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, so so here's what st- stood out to me watching this again. Poe is not really like the Poe that we saw in The Force Awakens. He's very um, douchey. <laughs> yes, he really is. And, and irresponsible and jerky and and superior and, you know, smart-alecky. I mean, he had a little bit of a sense of humor in in the force awakens but here he's he seems almost like a completely different character i mean in the force awakens he was trusted enough by leia specifically to be sent on a mission to try to get you know this this map that shows where you know where luke is hiding and in this movie suddenly he's completely shut out he's not allowed to know what the plan is or even if there is a plan and the whole movie is is positioning him as this this headstrong hotshot that needs to be taken down a peg and taught a lesson and taught some humility. And that's not the Poe, I think, that we met in The Force Awakens. He seems in a very weird starting place. I think that whole that whole part of the story of, of Poe trying to basically take over the fleet because he doesn't trust Holdo and all that, I don't think that really worked at all in, in favor of, of this movie. I, I just, it, it didn't. I think Poe would have been much better served being the guy trying to save the fleet, you know, maybe going off with Rose to do whatever. I think I think the whole Canto Bite thing is not exactly great either, but I'll talk more about that. But but Poe being the guy who sort of sneaks away with Rose and is trying to do something to save the fleet would be much more in line with the character as he was presented in The Force Awakens, somebody who's trusted enough to take, you know, an important role in, in trying to save the fleet. But but in this case, he's just this this overly arrogant, very much like you said, douchey character that it's very hard to root for, and just doesn't feel like the Poe we were introduced to in the Force Awakens, Chris. Yeah, and I felt like it was okay. I could see it with the dreadnought part. Like it, it makes sense to be this headstrong pilot, head in your cockpit, and all that type of stuff that Leah says. But I think they just leaned way too far into it. I will say that the only kind of salvageable thing about this entire thread is how it's kind of flipped on its head. And when, you know, Holdo, you know, performs the Holdo maneuver and sacrifices herself, like it really has this like emotionally resonant moment, I think, for Poe. And it really kind of opens his eyes. But I, I feel like they could have scaled back on that. And it really, like I said, came across as douchey kind of really uncomfortable especially to question the authority of of two women that one in leia that he has 
you know, served under for quite some time and is basically her number two, if we're to believe what The Force Awakens opening crawl says. Um, So it's just uh, pretty uncomfortable, especially in the day and time that we live in for this really macho guy to question the leadership of women. And then, you know, to to the extent that it's a downright mutiny is, is pretty uncomfortable. It feels in a, in a lot of ways almost by design, like, you know, the, the creators behind this particular movie, whether Ryan Johnson or one of the producers or something, wanted to have, you know, a, a, a douchey male character to make exactly that point. And I, and I don't know that that was necessarily needed in this. I, I think Star Wars has generally tried, I think, with, with some exceptions, particularly in the prequels, but generally try to do right by its female leads. I mean, Leia was, you know, headstrong and a strong female leader from the get-go. I mean, the, the very first movie already. So I don't think that was necessarily needed in this particular movie. And and just Poe does not come across well and really, really written out of character. So to me, the best thing would have been for him to be dispatched on some kind of mission with Rose and have Finn over uh, with Luke and Ray, I think that would have been a better sort of division uh, of the characters. Yeah, in a movie that features gambling, I, I feel like, like I said, like the first part with the dreadnought and unnecessarily sacrificing the entire bombing fleet and all those lives, I feel like that was enough to kind of make him learn that lesson. But then, you know, to continue the gambling theme, they doubled and tripled down where they didn't really need to. We got it. That's exactly right, Chris. All right, what is your second big fix for The Last Jedi? Okay, so I did enjoy the fight between Captain Phasma and Finn. I thought it was a really great kind of come up moment or kind of like a redemption, um, you know, facing his, his demons from the past for Finn. But I would have liked to have still more from Captain Phasma. The Rebel Scum line is brilliant. It's beautiful. I love when he kind of, you think he's, like dead or gone or knocked out. Then he comes up and he's like, just says, Hey, I love that. And then socks her, takes off like part of her helmet. Loved all of that. But I would have liked to had more on screen time from Captain Phasma. And we talked about this in the Force of Awakens. I think it's even more egregious in the Force Awakens, but it's still not a whole lot better here. Even in a movie that I enjoy as much as The Last Jedi, it's still not near enough Phasma. And as much as I love Dom Hall Gleason as General Hux, I love like that spoiled rich boy vibe that he gives off. The fact that he just truly hates Kylo Ren and the back and forth that they have. I think that's a really interesting thread. But if maybe we even sacrifice a little bit of that with Hux and give a little bit of that character development to Phasma, uh, some type of happy balance. But I need some more Phasma. You know what? I'll agree with this. I think Phasma, uh, I I don't think Phasma should have died necessarily in this one. I think having a conflict and then having her wounded or something would have probably worked better. So we could have had a little bit more of her in in the final movie of the trilogy. So yeah, more more Phasma would have been good. I I don't think necessarily we need less Hux. I think we just need better Hux. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Here's another one that just really changed between movies. He comes across as such a buffoon in the last Jedi. And I don't think he was necessarily that much of a buffoon in the force awakens. He came across, as you said, kind of like a spoiled rich kid, but he also came across as capable. And I think that thread of Hux's character was just completely dropped 
as of this movie. He just he comes across as a complete doofus somehow, and I don't think that uh, that works really well for the movie either when you have a, a enemy that has somebody in the leadership position who is so clearly incapable of of doing really anything so what you want obviously in in a antagonist is somebody who is extremely capable and is going to put a proper challenge up for the heroes and hux is is not that as of this movie chris yeah and i think it's you know we talked about this in the force awakens episode is it's it's really interesting when they had you know 30 years to you know fix the it if you had anything you would want to fix about the the original trilogy or like kind of the tropes, you know, we talked about things like Boba Fett or, you know, stormtroopers being hilariously inaccurate. I feel like this is kind of like a microcosm of that is, is, you know, the precipitous drop off of his abilities and skills. And I don't even want to get into the next film yet because how goofy his character is treated in, in the, in the third and final one of this. But yeah, I totally agree with you there. Yeah, so so more more capable Hux yeah. and definitely more Phasma would have been nice. Yeah. All right, Dave. Uh, we've hinted at it several times, but what is your second big fix here? Well, dude, uh, you know you want to have this this side mission, obviously, because you want to show a different part of the conflict with the First Order, and that's all nice and dandy. Um, you have a movie that is basically based on an extended chase sequence which hey that looks familiar empire strikes back anybody um but at the same time clearly the story needed something more fine you want to have some kind of side mission fine but it needs to be something of consequence something that leads somewhere something that has a a result that has a a strong bearing on the plot and 90 percent of the canto bite stuff felt like an extended side mission in a video game that has no bearing on the overall plot of the game and and i think that's really regrettable because you have a a strong interesting new character in rose and you also have you know finn which has been shunted uh, over into the side mission that has little to to nothing to do with what the main thrust of the movie for about three quarters of the movie that's extremely poor storytelling so uh, that that whole part needed to be beefed up. Now, my first fix, obviously, was send, send Poe on whatever side mission this is with Rose. That's all fine and dandy. But two, it needs something more. This whole, you know, you're going to find this this master code breaker or whatever. And then that that part never really goes anywhere. It's It, it feels like wasted screen time in a movie that is fairly long and could have used that particular real estate for other things i think chris yeah it's really weird that and i don't want to downplay a portrayal from benicio del toro what i thought was just absolute master class in acting I, I the more i see from that guy on screen and things like this and as the collector in the marvel films I, I, it, there's nothing he can't do but i i was really just puzzled as to yes he broke them out of prison but now you're free why wouldn't you go get the red plum boom bloom guy now that you're free like but you just gonna follow this guy who is clearly sketchy from the jump yeah yeah the 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 whole that whole thread in the story just to me did not work very well chris and and i think you know some rewriting would have been better to to make some kind of um 
different situation. Like you want to make the point that, you know, you have war profiteering and all that, you know, so fine. So you have Rose and Poe, they're going to uh, some outpost or something to try to get some allies of the new Republic to come and help them only to find out, you know, those people are not coming because, you know, they're, they're war profiteering or whatever. And, and then they manage to find another way to bring help uh, to the fleet. That would have been, I think, a, m- a more interesting thread than this whole extended side mission. All right, Chris, what is your third and final big fix for The Last Jedi? Well, and this is maybe an overarching thing, and maybe it's a, you know, kind of a cheat card here, but like just the lack of communication about the vision for this series. And um, I feel like this was a definite zag from where we went with The Force Awakens. And then, you know, with the third film, it's I felt like it's it's an overarching retcon of everything that was developed in this movie. So it basically the next film rendered so much of this movie just unimportant, um, you know, and we'll get to that when when we visit this, when we visit the Rise of Skywalker in a couple of weeks. But it was just clear, even even in a film that I enjoy as much as I do this one it was very clear that there was no direction in, in where they wanted the end destination to be for these characters. You know, when it comes to characters of Finn, Poe, um, even, you know, we'll get into your boy Snoke here in a minute, but uh, it's just, there's a lack of planning in something that they had decades to plan for. I know that they wanted to kind of dispel a lot of, the the bad faith that was left after the prequels and and make quote unquote good star wars movies again but you would think that they would have done a better job planning this out you know um i 100 agree with with that i don't think though this is necessarily just jj abrams trying to retcon ryan johnson i think the problem that we end up with in the last jedi itself is that johnson did not like the pieces he was given for his middle movie of this trilogy i mean he clearly doesn't really know what to do with finn in this movie he turns you know poe in into this borderline you know misogynistic character um it's just it, it feels like the pieces that were set up by the force awakens johnson wants to reject outright rather than trying to to progress the story and and do something with those pieces he he very clearly has his favorite things he wants to play with and the other stuff gets kind of shunted aside and i think and i think that's a problem um because that too uh causes really a, a strong dissonance between the force awakens and the last jedi and then of course Abrams comes back and then makes that even worse with the rise of Skywalker. So there is a complete lack of cohesion. And I think that is 100% completely on, on the heads of, of Lucasfilm and, and the two directors involved, because the, basically watching these three movies feels like an extended slap fight between JJ Abrams and Ryan Johnson. Ray is somebody, no Ray is nobody, no Ray is somebody, smack, 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 smack. That's what it feels like. And it's it, it's it's horribly, you know, disconnected storytelling. I 100% agree with you on that. There needed to be real planning here. And I think uh, it all boils down to a very simple, you know, summarization, a very simple conclusion is that you have two very different stylistically 
creators, substance-wise creators. I mean, like if you look at the other works of Ryan Johnson, the other works of J.J. Abrams, they're very different visionaries, if you will, as to what they want to, what stories they want to tell. And it's very clear in this story here, Ryan Johnson wants to tell a very different story than J.J. Abrams wants to tell. And it's to the severe detriment of all the films. So just just to bring in a, a comic book analogy for a second, I think what we really needed here was a consistent voice behind the writing. And then having different directors will work better because they can bring their own voice to the visual style and everything, but the writing remains consistent. If you have, you know, a, a consistent writer on, on a comic book series, even if you have rotating set of artists, there's going to be at least some kind of cohesion there. But by allowing each director to come in and basically develop the story um, in collaboration with whatever screenwriter they're working with, that that's when you end up in trouble. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of this, as you said, falls at, you know, Disney and Lucasfilm, and it feels like a lot of, you know, a, a microcosm because, I, and I don't want to say like big corporations bad, which, you know, sometimes I do feel that way, but, um, you know, it feels like they really kind of just sat back and trusted that the, the money was going to come in from the box office, and they were really hands off on this you know, in a lot of the ways that you see with like Warner Brothers with when it comes to like the DC films, like there's no clear cohesive plan. You have, you know, kids playing in their separate sandboxes, telling their own stories. And there's, I, I really would put that on the overarching, you know, Lucasfilm folks, um, you know, whoever you, whoever you want to chalk that up to is you don't have, you know, in comics terms, you don't have an editor, you know, Spider-Man, Nick Lowe is the editor of Spider-Man. He oversees all this stuff, you know, and it's, you know, he's let stuff come back by through him and, and it's not been perfect. You have, you know, Jordan D. White on the X titles. He's the overarching things to make sure that this is a cohesive story. So whoever at Lucasfilm or Disney or whoever it needs to be, there was clearly no editor, uh, you know, editor-in-chief here you know making sure that we're telling cohesive story and that it all lines up continuity wise yeah i can agree with that all right dave this one's gonna get very spicy and interesting what is your third big fix i just don't i just don't enjoy what the the overall luke skywalker situation in this movie um and look, uh, I've been accused on social media multiple times of being some kind of huge Luke fanboy, which is probably the case, and that I want him to be perfect and infallible, which is not true. And in fact, I'm not even opposed to the situation that we find ourselves in, which is grumpy Luke that's cut himself off from the Force. I'm okay with that. And, I, and, and in fact, I really like Mark Hamill's performance in this movie. But there are a couple of things that I don't think work when it comes to Luke first is the fact that he is completely in active hiding because it is a complete 100% retread of what Yoda and, and Obi-Wan Kenobi did. He can be disillusioned and cut himself off from the force. And at the same time, still want to do something just to pick up on something that I said in, um, our force awakens episode, the idea that Kylo Ren's helmet, for example, could like block, force connection combined with the idea that Luke has cut himself off from the force because he's disillusioned 
would mean that Luke would be in a very interesting situation trying to find Ben without actually using the Force. I think it would be much more interesting if, he, and I've said this in the Force Awakens episode, if he were out there actually actively looking for Ben to try to save him in some way. And for most of the Force Awakens, we don't even know that Ben is Kylo Ren until you know the end when he takes his helmet off and he kills Han Solo. I think that would have been a much better part for the Force Awakens. So I think you know having Luke being active in some way, hey, I'm out here, I'm looking for Ben, and then you know, he has these coordinates where people can meet with him and, you know, Ray shows up and says, and with Finn and says, hey, we want to be trained. And he's like, well, no, because I've cut myself off from the force because all it does is give me grief. That that I think would have worked better. Um, Two, the other thing that really I think did not work with Luke at all is, you know, considering child murder, you know, I I don't think that was the best way of, of executing luke's disillusionment um it just is very uncomfortable when you have the hero of a story saying oh by the way i contemplated killing my teenage nephew because i sensed some darkness in him and i made this comment to you before we started recording but we're both teachers you know we've we've seen kids be pretty awful uh, to each other and to other people but i don't think either one of us has ever considered bringing a lightsaber to school um it's just it it's not something that should be done with a character that's supposed to be heroic in some way, especially considering this kid is not just any student of his, it's, you know, his nephew. This should not be something that ever crosses his mind as a solution. To me, uh, a fix for this would have been, you know, if Luke's Jedi Order was a little different and they were allowed to have attachments and maybe Luke had a wife and maybe Luke had a kid. And those people got killed. He lost, literally lost his family when he lost his Jedi Academy, when, when his temple was attacked, you know? And that kind of loss, I could see making Luke Skywalker, the great hero, spiral out of control the way he is portrayed in The Last Jedi, completely, you know, disillusioned from it all. The third and final thing that I think was a little frustrating although i will freely admit it is a very very it's very very cool the way it's executed in the last jedi is the fact that even after everything he learns luke still never gets off his keister and physically leaves to go help ray and the others uh this force projection thing although cool on the surface and and definitely a cheering out loud moment for me um it, it it doesn't quite click. It would have been so nice to have a scene. In fact, the scene where Yoda shows up and him and him and Yoda are talking. If Luke would have learned something, if Luke would have said, "You know what, Yoda, you were you were hiding out, and I was your big hope, but you were wrong. You should have not sat on your keister the whole time and let the galaxy go to crap, and neither should I." And then you have you know, some, some real forward development, not just for Luke, but for Luke to actually say, you know what, I, not only do I reject all this stuff that the Jedi did wrong, but I know my own master and even the, you know, my first master, Ben, who I really, really idolized, they did something wrong. They should have never isolated themselves and just waited for the next generation to take care of the problem. Sometimes the next generation needs a little help from you know the, the the wise old master who's been around the block. I'm not saying he should ride in and be the great hero, but he should have been there physically. 
I think that would have been a better character development for Luke in the long run. Now, I know that's a lot to unpack. I just want to, again, reiterate, I'm not opposed to, to Luke falling from grace, getting disillusioned, being you know the grumpy man who doesn't want to train the upstarts. All that is perfectly fine. How he arrived at that point and ultimately how he you know concludes the movie, I did not enjoy. Yeah, so I think the first overall thing I will totally agree with, I, I need a, like, what's the purpose of him being there? Why is he a hermit? Like, what's the whole point of that? I don't think that is explored near enough um as far as you know the the scene of you know him just even entertaining the thought of striking kylo down i i i I struggle with because i i'm not going to say that i get it i'm not like advocating child murder or anything but i think it's a really interesting way of of kind of throwing out the idea that we have built up our heroes to a point where we we want them to be infallible and i think that i will fully disclose that i think that it could have been illustrated better for him to have this moment of weakness and i think where where so many people are irked by it is just that visual of the the wildness albeit perhaps even evil in his eyes and then the visual of the lightsaber across his face i think i think that like kind of irked quite a few people but i'm all for heroes having a moment of weakness and like admitting that they're human i just think that that could have been kind of illustrated a little bit better than it was and and maybe even and we've talked about this before when you jump forward 30 years, that is a task. And then you have all of this happening off screen, off panel, if you're talking about comics, and then you're, we're just supposed to go along for the ride and just accept that. I think we could have had a little bit more of the development of the darkness in Kylo and just for them to deliver it the way that they did this helpless child asleep was, I think, a misfire a bit. Um, I, I'm a, whole, a wholeheartedly here for the, the projection part of it. I thought it was amazing. Um, I think it is a little bit derivative of, you know, more of the same, but, um, but the overarching thing is, you know, I, I, I see what they were trying to accomplish. And, and, and again, this is a macro versus micro thing. I think of kind of the message that they're trying to get across and, and they kind of, you know, lack the execution, so to speak. Well, to me, basically the entire movie, The Last Jedi, is a moment of weakness for Luke. I don't think we need necessarily that moment, as you pointed out, where of him standing over Kylo and being like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you, you know? We can have other moments of weakness. He obviously messed up um, in the training of Kylo because Kylo turned. He made the same mistakes that, that his own master made. Um there's plenty of weakness there without, you know, resorting to the notion of child murder, I think. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's something that we didn't really, of course, who would have known in 1978 when this all took place, that we didn't get in the original trilogy of Ben kind of ruminating. And maybe we'll get that in the Obi-Wan series, hopefully, fingers crossed, of 
what kind of impact, what kind of toll that takes on you as the mentor? You know, we've had, you know, students who have gone and grown up to, to have trouble with the law and, and get, you know, into real trouble for themselves. And that really kind of weighs heavily on you. Is there something I could have done differently? You know, this is a much different scale, of course, but like that, it's, you know, that you don't just, you know, blink that away. So I think that would be really a, something to really, you know, dive into. And maybe that's the reason that he's cut himself off. But I feel like they could have done a better job of explaining that. All right, Chris, that brings us to the lightning round. What have you got? Okay, so I don't have a whole lot. You know, I ride for this film, but there are a few lightning fixes that that I did pick up on. And I touched on this um, with The Force Awakens, but the Leia action scenes are particularly the one where she kind of like floats through space. Um, they're just uncomfortable for me. Um, not as uncomfortable as the Han Solo Harrison Ford action set pieces make me. And now we get news that he's making another indie film now at 78 and he's injured himself again. Please stop. Please stop it. Stop making like our, our elders do these action things and chasing for this last vestige of the good old days. Please stop doing that. You know, it's not as egregious here with Leia um, you know, and most of it's CGI, but, um, there, I think these characters, these legacy characters, if you will, are much better served in like the, like, like what they do with Luke here is like a, like a mentor role. And, and I love the scenes with Leia and Poe and the, uh, particularly the last scene with, uh, Leia and Holdo just really kind of, you know, brought tears to my eyes. So I, I, more of that, less of the old folks and action set pieces, please. Yeah, you know, I can 100% agree with that. I really got nothing to add to that. All right, Dave, um, first lightning round for you. Yeah, I did not like the the centerpiece of this movie, the chase scene. Um, so the reason I think that it worked extremely well in Empire Strikes Back is because the chase was constantly evolving and changing. Um, you know, with uh, them, tr- you know, trying to hide in the asteroid belt and landing, trying to do repairs, then they're inside the the throat of this this monster, space monster, or whatever. There was constant momentum in the chase. It was constantly shifting and changing. This chase uh, is basically a bunch of ships flying in a straight line. It felt like, and the longer that went on, the less believable it it became to me. Especially considering that the tracker was only on one ship, um, it it kind of defies logic to me why they wouldn't split up at some point and and try to you know rendezvous somewhere else later and and by that benefit maybe get rid of the ship that was being tracked um so i just didn't like the chase scene nature of it because it wasn't varied enough and the longer it went on the more boring it got yeah i will totally agree with that and this kind of um you know one thing that i i hadn't put down in the ending round but um you know kind of pops up to memory here the stakes in this film were incredibly hard to follow. I feel like we started with the dreadnought and it was just like guns, you know, blazing and, you know, pedal to the metal. But then like you have this really slow drawn out chase scene. And then, you know, you have the scenes on crate where it's just like, I don't, I don't know where the stakes are. Like it, it was just kind of, you know, all over the place stakes wise. And what am I, am I supposed to be nervous now? Yeah, exactly. All right, Chris, what is your next lightning round fix? Oh, the scrappy underdogs trope is a bit exhausting. We talked about this a lot with uh, the Force Awakens episode. We should have had the good guys be like the the government, the the you know the powers that be this time around, rather than the rebels. Again, just the 
there were elements of the crate scenes that I enjoyed, but like them trotting out in those ridiculously god awful speeders, it was just so tired and exhausting. Yeah, yeah, I can agree with that. And, and you know, again, the, the whole dynamic of the conflict needs to be different. If you know, otherwise, it just feels like a retread of the original trilogy. All right, Dave, what is next up? Lightning round for you. And I mentioned this as we were talking a little bit, uh, even before we recorded, but I think there's still way too many parallels with the original trilogy. Um, it it kind of goes back to that whole expectation thing. We got, you know, the the hermit um, master who's hiding out and, and the young upstart Jedi comes and, and looks for him and things don't go exactly into training the way the pupil anticipates. Uh, we have the whole, you know, call back to the throne room scene and return of the Jedi. Uh, there, there are just still way too many parallels, even in this movie. And, you know, I wanted a clean break. I wanted something fresh, something new, not constant um, nostalgia bait. Well, and and that's one of the, the reasons that I love this movie, because I feel like it pushes beyond as much as you can in Star Wars. And one of the things that, you know, as I've grown as a nerd and as I've aged kind of to be honest star wars has taken a backseat to other fandoms if you will because it's such it's so beholden to nostalgia and even in a film that really tries to push boundaries it's still such beholden to nostalgia tropes like this and it's just it's so frustrating it's like don't give me the same old story please yeah that's exactly right all right chris what else do you have for the lightning round so this is my last fix, unless, you know, I improvise something. My last fix is I need more Maz Kanata. I, I absolutely fell in love with her character. Of course, you know, I'm an absolute massive fan of Lupita Nyong'o, like, in everything that she does. But just the character of Maz was just new and different and exciting and mysterious. Like, she's, like, on this crazy mission negotiation but then that's all we get from Maz here i need more Maz content i i need more of the new stuff i need more phasma i need more Maz. give me more of the new stuff i can agree with that i think it's just another wasted character in a long line of wasted characters in star wars all right dave what is next up for you lightning round wise so I know that Ryan Johnson couldn't predict where things were going to go with the final film, but if you know hindsight is twenty twenty, then let's talk about that. I don't think, uh, and this is something we'll discuss more when we get to the final movie in the trilogy. But I don't think the Ray taking on the Skywalker moniker works very well based on her relationship with Luke as it is shown here. I think there should have been a little more time spent on on building up their relationship here for that to work in the final uh, movie of the trilogy. I mean, yeah, like Luke didn't take on the Yoda moniker. I mean, and even, you know, that was with more time, I think, in Empire Strikes Back. I mean, that might be splitting hairs, but it just seemed incredibly unearned. And we'll get to that, like you said, in Rise of Skywalker. But I have multiple bones to pick with that. You got anything else you want to throw out? Because I got two more for you. I'm good, but I'm interested because I'm, I'm interested to push back on your next one. So I'm actually not a biggest, the big fan of uh, the Holdo character. I think that Holdo in a lot of ways comes across as sort of a Leia clone. Uh, you know, the, the regal dress, the, the leadership position, the tough woman, all that stuff. I, I don't see the point in sidelining Leia in this movie for Holdo when I think Leia could have filled that role just fine herself. 
Well, the, and, 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 you know, you speak of hindsight, this is something difficult to kind of come back to because uh, unfortunately we lost Carrie Fisher, you know, soon after this film was released. I'm not exactly refreshed on the timeline of events, but um, it, it's just kind of hard to like, think what we could have done with, with, uh, you know, the character of Leia and stuff. Uh, but I, I, I will t- completely respectfully disagree. I, I thought it was a much needed new character. I thought Laura Dern turned in a really inspired performance. Um, you know, they may have been, you know, a bit derivative of the lay of character and creating that, you know, maybe even some, I, I got some vibes of Mon Mothma with the big long sleeves. Um, but I, I thought it was a nice, especially that last scene that we had between the two of them where they kind of say, may the force be with you at this, at the same time. And then Leia has this beautiful, beautiful line where she says, you go on, I've said it enough. And I thought that was like a nice passing off of the baton, uh, passing of the torch, if you will, as much as you can for a a character who ultimately sacrifices themselves. But I, I'm a fan of Holdo. Yeah. Yeah. I will, I will respectfully disagree with that. Um, I would have rather had, rather had more Leia. And I think the approach of this trilogy in basically taking each of the big three and kind of giving them one movie to shine, uh, kind of came around and bit them in the butt ultimately when when Carrie Fisher passed away. And really, Leia never had a showpiece. She never had a movie to shine. And I think that's a, a huge shame. And again, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, But uh, that also means that we never got the original big three back together, even for a single scene together in, in, in a movie. And I think that that was a huge missed opportunity. Well, and and you know, make this another lightning round fix. It's just another feather in the cap of they didn't plan this out well enough. In that, sure, you're going to tout it as look, the big three are back, but then they didn't know what the hell to do with them. That's exactly right. Yeah, very frustrating. All right, Dave, I think you've got um, one more lightning round fix. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about this one before we hit record too. I think we need to start doing some kind of Patreon pre-show or something. <laughs> uh, get, get you get to hear some more spicy language too. Um, I think Snoke in a hundred a hundred percent was a huge missed opportunity. It was another piece, another toy uh, in the toy box that that Ryan Johnson just didn't want to play with. So he's like, we'll just we'll just kill him off. Um, and I'm not even opposed necessarily to killing him off the way he was killed off in this movie but at least do something with him before you do that. I, th- this movie um, basically turned him into Palpatine light. And then the next movie literally turned him into a failed Palpatine clone. But I think there was potential there for a, a character that was significantly different. For example, how interesting would it have been for him to be not force sensitive uh, and to be somebody who was, you know, manipulating Kylo Ren for his own purposes without the benefits of having, you know, his own connection to the Force. I think something like that would have been very interesting. Seeing a little bit about how somebody without Force sensitivity could, you know, seduce somebody else to the dark side without that connection would have been interesting. I think there were was potential there to at least do something with the character before he was unceremoniously killed. Um but this movie turns him into Palpatine light or, 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 you know, a really, really horribly aged Hugh Hefner based on the robe. Um, and, and then just kills him. And it's just another one of those pieces. I think that it, it feels like was set up by JJ Abrams that Ryan Johnson just didn't want to play with. So he just killed him. And I think there was potential there. And I thought that was regrettable. 
See, and this is this is interesting because after watching The Force Awakens, I a lot of fans had all this speculation about you know the backstory of Snoke, and I guess I was in the minority. I didn't really connect with the character. It was not particularly interesting to me. Um, the only thing that was, you know, kind of struck my interest was the fact that he was so freaking big. But I guess that was just the hologram choice that they went with. So I. I will ride for the throne room scene as probably my favorite live action. Yes, I'm putting that clarifier on there. Live action Star Wars scene. Um, so, you know, and maybe that's the overall plan, you know, to its detriment again. Maybe you could have had that scene in a third film, but I, I absolutely love that scene. Maybe you could put it somewhere else. But um, yeah, so Snoke is not a character that I was like, I need to know more about this guy. But, you know, if you give me more backstory, I'm not going to be like, oh, what are you doing? So I, I'm kind of meh about it. Um, I think I texted you or, or tweeted at you like, I don't need more ugly grandpa. So, I mean, I will totally agree that it's another, you know, derivative character from the original trilogy. But like, who does that? Do we put that on Abrams? Do we put that on Johnson? I don't care. I just love that throne room scene. And, you know, Snoke was a meh character for me. It's not even Andy Serkis at his best. All right. There you have it. Uh, our fixes for Star Wars The Last Jedi. Maybe it didn't get quite as heated as Chris and I thought it might. I'm really, I'm really surprised because you guys really missed. Now they're going to be like clamoring for more content because it was pretty feisty before we hit the record button. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, it is time for Nerd Commendation. Stick around. All right, and we're back, and it's time for everybody's favorite part of the byword. That's right, nerd commendations. Chris, what's good? So I think you know. I think we always save the best for last with this segment. It's it's my personal favorite. It's my gem um, because you get to learn about new stuff and like things you you never would have thought about. Um, and so based on our discussion about the uh, E3 event and reveals last week, I decided to hop on Xbox Game Pass and check out The Outer Worlds, and I could not be happier with it. I haven't played a lot of Fallout games, but it would appear that there are some striking similarities between that franchise and this game. Um, the basic premise is that you are a recently revived citizen of the futuristic space colony of Halcyon. For some mysterious reason, you and 70 other individuals have remained frozen while competing corporations jockey for power and position in Halcyon as resources, though already scarce, are quickly drying up. Dr. Phineas Wells, who revives you, uh, has given you the burden of acquiring the necessary materials to revive the other citizens and further investigate just what is going on in Halcyon. In addition to the definite fallout post-apocalyptic vibes this game gives off, I would venture to say that there is also a healthy blend of both Star Trek and Star Wars as well. This game definitely scratches that sci-fi itch that I've been dying to see in a video game for quite some time. Although it took some serious time for me to adjust to the completely first game playing style of, you know, cataloged my issues with that in the past, but I kind of overcame it and I'm pretty proud of myself. The Outer Worlds boasts a feature that both Dave and I have lauded in previous episodes of the show. 
The outcome of the storyline of this game rests entirely on your shoulders and the decisions you make throughout the game. And I mean each and every decision. Like, it's literally one of those games where, like, the epilogue is completely a result of the decisions you made from completely scene one of the game. I couldn't help but feel like Han Solo as I was scurrying back and forth between bosses of conflicting corporations, smuggling some payloads while straight up executing individuals who I determined deserved it. This game basks in the aura of the space cowboy motif. My only nitpick of the game, and maybe this is on me, I played it a lot over the past week, is that I beat it rather quickly, and now I'm suffering withdrawals. I'm sitting there staring at my game library or the Microsoft Store, don't, and I don't know what to do. I can't wait for the sequel to this game, which may not come out for a few more years. I think I may do a Fallout deep dive in the meantime. There are a bunch of those on Game Pass. But yeah, uh, The Outer Worlds on Xbox Game Pass, definitely check that one out. I absolutely adore it. Yeah, I uh, have not finished this game, but I have played it and I really, really enjoyed what I played of it. Um, So I can wholeheartedly second your uh, nerd commendation here. I will also say that if you enjoyed this game, you should definitely play uh, Fallout New Vegas specifically because it was made by the same developers. And uh, it's it's probably my favorite of the Fallout games. I think you're really going to like it, Chris. Oh, that's crazy because that's exactly what I started up today. Well, that's definitely the right decision then. (laughs) All right, Dave, I'm super excited to hear about your nerd commendation. So uh, we're getting a a remaster of The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword. And I wanted to just go ahead and nerd commend this game um, because I think it's kind of gotten a bum uh, rep over the years. So Skyward Sword uh, was originally released on the Nintendo Wii. Um, and because of that, it of course featured uh, full motion controls, specifically the Wiimote doubled as your sword, and the motions that you made with the Wiimote were uh, basically matched pretty much one for one, uh, you know, with some hits and misses uh, on the screen. Uh, a lot of fans of Zelda did not enjoy the motion controls, and because of that, I think uh, the game kind of got a poor reputation. Compared to Breath of the Wild, it's obviously a a more traditional Zelda game. It's a lot more linear, a a, a lot less open world. But at the same time, it features a a fascinating world that, uh, you know, some concept of which may be revisited in the new Breath of the Wild sequel, Uh, you know, floating islands and people living on them and, you know, riding these giant birds called loft wings from Sky Island to Sky Island. Um, the uh, sword play overall was actually pretty good. It features the best version of the Zelda character, I think, maybe besides Breath of the Wild. Uh, Zelda has always been sort of a nothing character uh, until really Skyward Sword uh, made her significantly more uh, interesting and a more fully rounded character. So I'm a big fan of the Legend of Zelda series. And although Skyward Sword is oftentimes treated as sort of the black sheep of the series, I I wholeheartedly recommend this one, especially for people who enjoy other Zelda games. The new remaster, by the way, uh, for the Switch is going to feature the option to either play with motion controls or to turn those off and use more traditional controls. So I hope that this option will lead to a bit of a reevaluation of the game. The story is very good. Uh, The game mechanics are fun. The dungeons are expertly designed in this one. Um, 
very different from something like Breath of the Wild, where you only have these these mini dungeons in the shrines. You get the full dungeon experience in this one. Um, I think there's a lot to love about this game. So you know, here's hoping that people start realizing it's kind of a hidden gem in the Zelda series, way underappreciated. So my nerd commendation: Legend of Zelda: Skyward Sword. See, I'm super excited to check this one out. Um, for for one reason or another, it passed me by when I had my Wii, and um, you know, as I've chronicled on here before with playing Breath of the Wild for the first time as soon as I got the Switch, um, I've absolutely fallen in love with the franchise. And you know, there are previous you know entries that I've played since that you know basically make Princess Zelda like Princess Peach, you know, in a more you know realistic you know, form and the, the whole damsel in distress trope. So hearing that she gets some more agency and a much more compelling character work, like she was in, in breath of the wild, I'm, I'm absolutely here for. Um, and what I love about this franchise, you know, to a T is it's, it's like fantasy at its best in that whimsical kind of dreamscape. And I absolutely love that. And basically everything that I've seen trailer wise or, you know, video gameplay wise, I absolutely adore. And it's, it's really, you know, you know, in, in commonality with that. So I'm super excited to check this one out. Yeah. I, I really, really love this one. Um, I'm glad to see it, uh, you know, coming back out and getting another shot. All righty, folks, that's it for another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe and give us a rating or review or both on your favorite podcasting platform. We are, of course, available wherever podcasts can be found, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Audible. We're basically everywhere. We're very, very easy to find, including our very own website, nerdbyword.com. And be sure to come back next week for another installment of Homework. Dave is reading Ta-Nehisi Coates' Black Panther, the first volume. And I am reading The Rebirth Era of Superman uh, by Tomasi and Gleason. So be sure to stick around for that. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, ideas for future episodes, you want to chat with us, how would you fix The Last Jedi? Um, what are your thoughts and feelings on that? Do you agree with the, what we've done or was there something different you would do be sure to hit us up on social media instagram and twitter at nerd by word individually at that nerd dave and at that nerd chris and as always stay well and stay nerdy the nerd by word is written and produced by chris and dave two nerds with a love of all things pop culture the podcast features music by al Jimenez, with additional drops composed by joe biondi our show art is by ashery design Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available.